I saw royalty once. It happened uh, when my wife and I were living in Edinburgh, Scotland, when I was doing my PhD. The Queen and her family came to St. Giles Cathedral to induct Prince William into the Order of the Thistle. I have a photo that I've edited to help you see the Queen in the photo. Now, the experience for me of seeing royalty was just the excitement of the crowd and seeing someone famous. Uh, Actually, the size of the crowd in Scotland surprised me, given the historic tensions between Scottish and English people. But I was there with an Englishman. He was from Yorkshire. And I could tell that the experience for him was quite a bit different. There was an affinity there. This was a point of national pride for him. This was his queen. This was not just any famous person. This was Her Majesty. This summer, we've been looking at Polaroids of God from the Psalms. We've seen pictures of God as the sun, a warrior, a midwife, a hiding place, streams of water, or a rock. And a couple of weeks ago, when Brooks was preaching, he he referenced Psalm 42, verse 2. When shall I come and behold the face of God? What we've been doing throughout this series is, is hoping to see God. How do we see God? And what different ways can we see God? And today, the picture, uh, the Polaroid of God is of God as king, royalty. The idea of God as king is all over the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And the, the passage I want to look at today and begin with is Psalm 2. It is a picture of God as king, but it is a bit indirect. Uh, we're not looking specifically at God in this psalm. It actually is looking at someone else, in particular the king of Israel. In, in Jewish thought, the king of Israel is the embodiment of God's rule on earth. The throne that the king sits on in Jerusalem is the king's throne, but it's, it's quite literally in Hebrew thought the throne of God. As John Collins puts it, the kingship of God is implemented through human kingship. And so for Jewish people to see the king, to see royalty, is to see God. If you have a Bible handy or a phone app and you want to turn over, the passage is Psalm 2. It's a four-part psalm. We, we don't have any idea really when it was written, but it was used throughout Israel's history during the coronation of the king. All these ceremonies that they would have every time a new king would ascend to the throne, this psalm would get recited. And what you have to imagine in your mind as we look at this psalm is there are different groups of people. You have the king himself, of course. You have probably someone uh, or maybe a couple of people who are leading the ceremony. And then you have crowds of people. And there's a, there's a fourth character, if you will, uh, that's kind of imaginary. And they are the, the enemies of Israel. So as we work through this psalm, what you'll see is that each one of these groups, characters, speaks in turn. To begin, the first three verses of the psalm are when Israel's enemies are speaking. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. Now, the enemies aren't there, of course, at the coronation ceremony. You probably have something like a worship leader saying these things. And it poses a hypothetical question from the perspective of Israel. Why do other nations oppose us? Now, as we read the Old Testament, our temptation is to uh, probably inflate the significance of Israel in the ancient world. Uh, Israel is actually a very minor kingdom. Uh, the, the nation of Israel is about the size of the state of Delaware, if you've ever been there. But it wasn't a, a strategic location between Mesopotamia, Syria, Iraq, Iran, those areas to the north and east, and the Arabian Peninsula and Egypt to the south and west, and then it sat on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And so to ask the question, why do all of these nations oppose us, the answer is actually quite simple, because you're in the way. But when you're the opposed, when you're the one who's conspired against, when you're the one who's threatened, things look a little different. That was a common theme for Israel throughout the Old Testament. They experienced very little peace in their history. Egypt, Amorites, Amalekites, Philistines, Canaanites, Edomites, Assyrians, Babylonians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans. That's just a few from the Bible. But what this psalm envisions is to fight against Israel, to fight against the king of Israel, is to fight against God. And notice verse 2, his anointed, his, in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is the king of Israel. It just means anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. And kings, during a coronation ceremony, like what's envisioned here in Psalm 2, would have been anointed by a priest with oil. This is not about Jesus, understand. This is about the king of Israel. Jesus will come later. Okay? But what this psalm does here at the beginning, as these nations, imaginary nations, speak against them, is align God with the king of Israel. And in the next section of the psalm, God speaks. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then... He will speak to them in his wrath and, his, and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, God doesn't speak immediately. What you have here is a picture of God going something like... <clears throat> but verse 5 is God's anger. Because to challenge Israel, to challenge the king of Israel, is to challenge God. And verse 6 is God's response to that challenge. He installs the king. And then in the next section, beginning in verse 7, the king himself responds. And in the ceremony, he probably would have said these words. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
The king recalls God's promise, his decree, his statute, his ordinance, that God has begotten him. Now, the word begotten or beget really only appears in certain translations of the Bible. It's an old word. We don't really use it these days, but it simply means to become the father. And so in this in this very real sense, there's a familial identification between God and the king of Israel. So that what God has to offer in the way of inheritance, the nations of the world become the king's inheritance in verse 8. And then finally, as the king is crowned, the crowd that's gathered speaks last in verse 10 and affirms the coronation. Now, therefore, O kings, that is kings of the nation, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling, kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy or blessed are all who take refuge in him. As the crowd responds, they issue a warning to these imaginary nations and kings who plot against the king of Israel, God's representative. And they issue a blessing to those who obey the king of Israel. Serve the Lord, kiss his feet. These are poetic, symbolic terms urging obedience to the king. What I want you to see is that this psalm tells us that to see the king of Israel is to see God. In verse 2, rebellion against the Lord is rebellion against the king and vice versa. Verse 6, God installs the king and so to oppose the king is to oppose God. Verse 7, God is the king's direct father. Verses 8 and 9, the nations are the king's possessions, even though God owns them. Verse 11, to serve and fear the Lord is to serve the king of Israel. To take refuge in God is to take refuge in the king. This is common throughout the Hebrew Bible, that the king is God's representative on earth. If you want to see God, look at the king, royalty. Now, if Psalm 2 seems familiar to you, there might be a reason for that. It's the second most quoted psalm in our New Testament. We don't have time to look at all of them, but let me just give you a couple of of examples here. Psalm 2, verse 2 is echoed in Revelation, chapter 11 and chapter 19. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his anointed, his Messiah, Revelation says. Chapter 2, verse 8, is echoed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things. You hear the inheritance language there. Chapter 2, verse 9, is echoed again in Revelation, speaking of the birth of Jesus. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But probably the most famous and most familiar is Psalm 2, verse 7. And and if you know any of them, I'm guessing this is the one. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's quoted six times in the New Testament by my count. Twice in Hebrews and several times in the Gospels. Most notably in the scene of Jesus' baptism in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What the New Testament authors are doing is looking at events in the life of Jesus as analogous to the coronation of 
the king of Israel in the Old Testament. So that in their minds, Jesus is the king of Israel. He is God's representative on earth. He is the rightful ruler. He is the son of God. There's one more passage where Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament. It's Acts chapter 4. Quotes the first two verses of the psalm. In, in, in Acts 4, verses 25 through 28, we read this. It is you, God, who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant. And here's the psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The reference in Acts is to the story of Jesus' trial and death in Luke 23. Luke is the only gospel in which Herod, Herod Antipas, that is Herod the Great's son, appears in Jesus' trial. After Jesus had been questioned by the Jewish religious authorities and Pontius Pilate, he was sent to Herod for questioning. Herod sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate for sentencing after concluding that Jesus had done nothing wrong. So these early Christians, they look around and they say, Aha, this is like that. You have kings and rulers, Herod and Pilate. You have Gentiles and peoples, crowds of onlookers. They're raging. They're imagining vain things. They're taking their stand. They're gathering together against the Lord and against his Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus. And we see again here that to rebel against the king, Jesus, is to rebel against God. But what's odd about this is that the reference to the psalm in Acts 4 isn't actually about Jesus. The context of the citation would tell you that. Now, I only read a few verses, but you have to go back to Acts chapter 3 to see this. In Acts 3, Peter and John, the apostles, are going up to the temple at the time of prayer. They're they're coming to, to worship as Jews. And along the way, they encounter a man who is unable to walk because of some physical malady, and he's begging there, and Peter and John, they have no money, and so in place of giving the man some money, Peter heals him. Arise and walk, he says. And the man jumps up, and he begins running around the temple precincts, and that provides Peter an opportunity to preach to the crowd that's there, that's gathered, the miracle. The religious leaders, once they hear what Peter is saying, are quite annoyed by that. And so they arrest the apostles, Peter and John, and hold them overnight. They are questioned the next day, and at the end of the story, nothing really came of it. They just released the apostles and warned them not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. Now here's where the story picks up in Acts 4.23. After they, that is Peter and John, were released... They went to their friends, the church, the other Christians there in Jerusalem, and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they, that is the church, heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, 
It is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, verse 29, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants, the church, to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Okay, maybe I overspoke a little bit. It is about Jesus. But in this context, it's about the church. So if Psalm 2 gives us a picture of God as the king of Israel, and New Testament writers take that psalm and they see it as analogous to Jesus so that the psalm gives us a picture of God as Christ. What the writer of the book of Acts is doing here is making one further analogy so that the church represents the presence of God and Christ in the world. You want to see God? The writer of the book of Acts says, look at the church. Now that's really no surprise by this point in, in the book of Acts. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 1 verse 1. The book begins like this. In my first book, that is the gospel of Luke, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication of that is this second book is going to be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. The only problem with that is Jesus ascends to heaven ten verses later. So he's gone. What does that mean? How is it that Jesus continues to do and teach things in the book of Acts? It's through the church. It's through the apostles. It's through Christians. That's the underlying thought here with this reference to Psalm 2 in Acts 4. If you think about it the other way around, the church is threatened. Work backwards. They likened their situation to threats that Jesus faced from Herod, Pilate, crowds, religious leaders, others. And Jesus, according to the New Testament, is God's representative son and king. So that the church becomes a way of seeing Jesus, the king, and God by extension in the world. So here's my question. If we are the picture of God for the world, what is the world seeing? I think that's a fair question based on how Psalm 2 is appropriated by the book of Acts. And we actually have here in Acts a good test case. The church is threatened. When threatened, what do they do to show the world God? 
What do we do when threatened to show the world God? Now, I have to admit, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Coronavirus has posed some threats. There are obvious health threats. There are financial threats. You may have felt that personally. A loss of a job or being furloughed. Uh, churches are feeling that. Organizations are feeling that as, as people are out of work. There are threats to the church about gathering. When will we be able to get back together as normal? It's, it's hard to tell. There are mental health threats to people, particularly the elderly uh, in, in care facilities, nursing homes, who are unable to see their family. There's community impact as organizations can't undertake the kind of care for their communities like they would five, six months ago. How does the church respond when threatened? Unfortunately, I don't always see a picture of God I want to be aligned with. When Christians in the church are threatened, the response isn't always rosy. I see threatened Christians collecting Bible verses that support my position and ignoring all the ones that don't so that we can weaponize Scripture and defeat opponents. When, when Christians are threatened, I see them organizing boycotts of certain retailers and restaurants, potentially putting people out of work who have nothing to do with the issue. When Christians are threatened, I see them take to social media to passive-aggressively or just plain old aggressively attack an interlocutor, thinking that enough likes will prove their rightness. When Christians are threatened, I see an inordinate concern for personal and political rights taking precedent over one's loving one's neighbor. When Christians are threatened, I see them campaigning for political candidates who will guarantee a place of power for the church and society. When Christians are threatened, sometimes I see outright hate. I say these things to challenge us. Challenge myself, because I've done some of those things. But that is not a Christian at her best. That is not the church at its best. And we pay the societal price of, at best, being ignored for it, and at worst, people turning their backs on God and Christ and the church. We have some things to learn from this story in Acts 4. What did these Christians do when they were threatened? How did they respond? Now, as I worked through this, I have to admit their responses, they seemed weird. But as Kevin Rowe says in his book, World Upside Down, from the perspective of an outsider, the Christians are a strange and problematic social reality. These Christians in Acts were threatened because they gathered together and they prayed. And what was their response to the threat? They gathered and they prayed. 
Peter and John are going to the temple to pray in Acts 3. And that provides them an opportunity to heal a man and to preach. And they are on the receiving end of these threats. They're told not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. What do they do immediately after being released? They go back to the church and they gather and they pray. From the earliest days of Christians meeting in the temples and in other places in Acts, in homes and in the early church, all the way through the Middle Ages, gathering in some of the great basilicas and cathedrals in the world, to underground churches in places where attempts have been made to suppress Christianity, to meeting online during a pandemic. The church's best response to threats is simply to gather and pray. Southside has done that regularly throughout the threat posed by the coronavirus, and we will continue to do so online, in person, maybe both. But here's what I want you to hear in that action. The world will see God. These Christians in Acts were threatened because they helped a person. But what was their response to that? They continued to help people. Peter and John are arrested in part for healing a lame man. But immediately after their release, Acts chapter 4, verse 29, Lord, look at their threats. While you stretch out, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. If you continue reading into Acts 5, there's a very similar story that happens there. And for much the same reason, the apostles and the church are helping people and they're preaching about Jesus. You come over to chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. They're gathered together. They're helping people. Verse 13 is interesting. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women. Again, I would say, in many ways, Southside has responded admirably to the threats of the pandemic. Almost immediately, the church doubled its benevolence budget. See pictures on social media regularly of pastors making phone calls. Zoom coffee sessions, gathering when possible with small groups outside, uh, even recently here with smaller groups in the building, a micro food pantry, countless other ways that will never be told of. It's in those actions that the world will see God. And as I mentioned, these, these Christians in Acts were threatened because they were talking about Jesus. And their response to that threat, don't speak in the name of Jesus, was to continue speaking about Jesus. Immediately after their release and prayer, verse 31, chapter 4, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Again, chapter 5, the way that story ends, the apostles are arrested they're questioned, they're threatened, they're physically beaten and then released. Here's how that story ends. Acts 5.41, as they left the council, they rejoiced 
that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. So much of our talk about Jesus gets lost in our desire to win, to gain power, to maintain rights, to be loudest, to be most influential. And it's so much easier to see the negative than it is the positive. I don't know how you watch the live streams or streams of the services online. My wife and I have been watching on Facebook. I went back just to look. You can tell how many people have watched these videos. I don't know if you know this, but over the last few months, the services of the church here have been viewed by over a thousand people a week. Now, I've been coming to Southside for seven years, and I can't remember a time that there were ever a thousand people in the building, with the exception of maybe a Christmas or an Easter service at some point. Even in the face of the threats of a pandemic, we've been talking about Jesus. And it's in that action that the world sees God. So I say all of that to encourage us. In the midst of what has, at least for me, been the oddest five months of my life. Probably yours too. We're doing well. We can always do better. So my encouragement is this. We have responded well to the threats, both real and perceived, that this pandemic has put in front of us. Be careful about responding poorly. I come back to my question. If we are the picture of God for the world, what is the world seeing? In Psalm 2, it was, it was the king of Israel. And the king in that psalm responded to the threats of the nations by acknowledging the promise of God. In the New Testament, it's Jesus referenced by Psalm 2. And he responded to threats by sacrificing himself for the sake of other people. And here in the book of Acts, it's the church. Viewed in light of Psalm 2. Responding to threats by continuing to live faithfully by serving other people. If we are the picture of God for the world, what is the world seeing? <laughs>